During Advent, we are going to continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John, but do not worry. As you heard, we are going to sing Christmas carols. We are going to light Advent candles. We will still have our traditional Christmas Eve service, but on Sunday mornings, we are going to stay put in the Gospel of John. And one of the main reasons we're going to do that is we'd love for the death and resurrection of Jesus to line up with Easter. That sounds really nice. And so we're going to spend a few extra weeks here during Advent in the Gospel of John remembering who Jesus grew up to be. That the child that was sent by the Father came to live, to die, and to rise again. So this morning we are still in John's Gospel. We are still in chapter 11, and we are dealing with the fallout of Jesus miraculously raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so today we're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, where instead of a story about Jesus, we find another sad picture of unbelief. That all throughout John's gospel, he's given us these glimpses of unbelief. He has written his gospel, so we believe. And one of the ways he does that is to show us unbelief and to show us the sadness of it. So if you would open up your Bibles or you can use the text printed in the bulletin. We're in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45, as we look at this picture of unbelief. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. And told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks the truth to us, to speak not just of the joys of, un- of the joys of belief, but the sadness of unbelief. We pray, O oh God, that you would please open our hearts and our minds today to receive your word. God, give us ears to hear. Oh Lord, I pray that you would please use me in spite of my sin, in spite of my own weakness, O oh God, to faithfully proclaim your word, to expound and apply it in ways that are clear and faithful. And I ask, O oh God, that you would help us to receive it and that your spirit would work in us so that the word would do its mighty and supernatural work in us to strengthen our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The opening verses of our passage today tell us that some who saw the raising of Lazarus from the dead believed in Jesus, and others who ran off and likely did not. And our passage follows the people who did not believe. And it shows us how unbelief can seem good, wise, And powerful. That unbelief can seem good, wise, and powerful, but those are just appearances. Because Scripture unmasks unbelief and shows us God's ultimate victory that He shares with those who believe. And so John first shows us how unbelief can seem good. Specifically, when that unbelief looks like it's concerned with others. And so some who witnessed the raising of Lazarus ran the two miles to Jerusalem to inform the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. And I'm all about benefit of the doubt here. I would love to assume that these people were running with the joy like the shepherds who had just heard the angels announce the birth of Jesus, that they were just running with glee and joy like he rose him from the dead. I I can't get there, I don't think. That it seems that these are people working for the Pharisees, charged with keeping track of Jesus and his movements, and they had big news to share with the people who don't like Jesus. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gather the Jewish ruling council together for a special meeting. Who doesn't love a good meeting? They even have an agenda. Main topic on the agenda. What? Are we going to do about Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, that seems like a relevant topic. They have a nice, clear agenda to discuss. They even have accurate information to inform their decision making. They say, this man performs many signs. All good so far. I've been in way, way worse meetings. That as far as meetings go, we have a very nice, clear thing to discuss. We have information to help us make decisions. But then we see that this meeting is flawed. 
that in verse 48, we see that this group is approaching their decision in a very particular way. We read them say, if we let him, that is Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The council seems to be concerned with the Romans. Those are the people who are ruling over the Jewish people at this time. And that the Romans will not be happy if this people under them gets all wound up about some Messiah, some promised figure who might lead a revolution. And to be fair to the Jewish council, this kind of thing had happened before in recent years. That other people claiming to be the Messiah, other revolutionary leaders had tried to stir up the Jewish people to rebel against Rome, and they all failed. And in every instance, the Romans retaliated harshly against the Jews. And so looking at the council and sitting in on their meeting, they seem to be concerned about others. They seem to be trying to do good for the sake of the people. And if you looked at who was there, you would notice this is not a collection of criminals. These are not all of the villains from Batman sitting down to discuss how we will kill the Batman. These were dignified, devout men. Almost certainly they opened the meeting in prayer and closed it in prayer. They seemed like a group of good people trying to do good for the people, but appearances can be deceiving. And so John helps us unmask the true selfishness of the leader's unbelief. He shows us in verse 48 their three-step reasoning that reveals that their self-interest is their primary concern. Three-step reasoning in their heads as they are making these decisions. Step one in their reasoning is we are in charge. They start from that position. We are in charge. We see that where they say, if we let him go on like this. Do you hear the assumption of authority and power in that statement? They are certain they have the ability to stop Jesus if they choose. They are the ones who allow or disallow everything religious in Judaism. That deep down, they are in charge. And so step one, they are in charge. Step two in their reasoning, we know what's best. They argue that if people believe in Jesus, the Romans will take notice and they will squash it, bringing detrimental harm to the Jewish people. But they only think that way because they have already decided for themselves that Jesus is not the Messiah. Because if they had any hint of belief that Jesus might be the Messiah, they would not be worried about Rome. You see, the risk of upsetting Rome is worth it if the real Messiah is here. But they know what's best. And they know Jesus isn't that guy. 
So step one, we're in charge. Step two, we know what is best. And the third step then in their reasoning is what is best for the people is for us to be in charge. They end, the, they end verse 48 saying, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And it sounds like our probably includes the whole Jewish people, but they are far more concerned about the hour in that room. One commentator puts it this way, that the leaders are above all afraid the Romans will come and take away from them the nation and the temple. And so they are most interested in preserving their own power and influence, showing their unbelief is not concerned about others. All they are worried about is themselves. That unbelief reveals itself in self-interest. It may seem good, but deep down there is self-interest at heart. And so John, having shown, up, having shown us how unbelief appears to be good but is not, he then shows us how unbelief seems to be wise. We see this false wisdom in the person of Caiaphas, the high priest. You see, the council at this meeting, they understood the issue. They discussed the issue. We don't know how long this meeting got. Meetings can get real long. We all know that, okay? But Caiaphas eventually had enough. No one had a solution, and he was happy to provide a solution. And so as high priest, he had no problem commanding the room, putting everyone in their place, and saying, you know nothing at all. Gosh, it's amazing to be able to get up in a meeting and just say, you know nothing at all. It's a bold move. And he's got a plan. He's got a solution. It is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish. The council probably fell silent for a little bit. And then some heads began to nod. Some, here, here. You know, some of that stuff started happening. And they could see the wisdom in what Caiaphas had said that the plan of killing Jesus would lead to the desired outcome of peace with the Romans. And if there's peace with the Romans, the leaders on the council would be able to keep their positions of power and maintain their influence over the people. And so we see Caiaphas has a kind of pragmatic wisdom. He knows how to achieve outcomes. He can read a situation and figure out, you're at point A, you want to get to point B, I will get you there. See, it's not that he thought Jesus was necessarily a bad guy. He was just an obstacle to their desired outcome. That Jesus' life was not as important as peace and what they wanted. That if Jesus' life is what it cost to maintain peace, then so be it. But we're reading this, and we can see Caiaphas's wisdom is foolishness. He is willing to break God's laws in order to protect God's people. Instead of using the true wisdom found in God's word, Caiaphas resorts to the pragmatic wisdom of the world. 
He is willing to let the allegedly good ends justify his clearly wicked means. And so, yes, Caiaphas' plan, it makes sense if all you care about is the outcome. His plan makes a lot of sense. But the path to that outcome is murdering an innocent man. And in this particular case, the innocent man is the Son of God who is perfectly innocent and righteous and free of sin. Now again, remember who these people are. These are the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They are the holiest men in the world, allegedly. And yet their leader stands up and says, all of you are stupid for not realizing the only way to get what we want is to have this innocent, godly, miracle-working man executed. How does that not make sense to any of you? It's insane what's happening in that room. How they can believe that God will bless these efforts that so flagrantly disobey His law. Belief is the problem. If they believed strongly in God, they wouldn't so casually suggest sin as the solution. If they believed in a holy God, they would find a holy way to achieve a holy outcome. But they don't. They seem wise, but they're not. And so John shows us how unbelief seems good. He shows us how unbelief seems wise, but it's neither of those things. And then finally, John shows us how unbelief seems powerful. Verse 53 reveals that the council sided with Caiaphas. It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The council in their meeting had agreed on what needed to be done. Jesus, gone. They just needed to figure out how to do it. And this decision was common knowledge among the people. This is a council of 70 people with perhaps dozens more in attendance at their meeting. And so word about the verdict spread even to Jesus himself. We read that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, at least not until the last week of the Passover. And others who came early for Passover knew about the plans of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They knew they wanted to have him executed. And so at this point in the story, it seems like Jesus' time is up. The religious leaders are done with Jesus. They have determined his fate. That Jesus is not going to get arrested and order them to figure out is he innocent or guilty? They've already figured that out. The trial is just the way to make it happen. See, the leaders are in power, and now Jesus is an outcast, a wanted man. He seems like his only options are to go into hiding or turn himself in. To all the world, the unbelieving leaders are the powerful ones who can manipulate the situation to get their desired outcome. But John shows us they are not powerful. He shows us that God is truly in control. And the ultimate unmasking in this story is in verses 51 and 52, where the Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain for us and shows us, here's what's really going on. 
we read that Caiaphas did not say what he said of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, Caiaphas intended one thing when he said Jesus would die for the sake of the people. God intended something very different. And as much as Caiaphas may seem to be a powerful man in control, God is able to use the very wicked words coming out of his mouth to conquer Caiaphas and those like him. He is able to use them to proclaim truth, even though they meant to be lies. Caiaphas unknowingly makes this prophecy about Jesus' sacrificial death. I mean, of all people, shouldn't the high priest get the whole sacrificial thing? And yet here it was. He couldn't even see what he was saying. And yet Jesus did. One man die for the gathering in of all of God's people. It's not what the high priest had in mind. But it didn't matter. He wasn't in power. God was. As we read in our Old and New Testament readings, God is going to defeat all who oppose him. In Psalm 64, David is threatened by the enemies scheming against him. And what does he say in there? He says, God will use their tongues against them. Boy, that sounds a whole lot like Caiaphas, doesn't it? That he will use their wickedness against them. And then in Matthew 2, Herod goes through this horrific plan to stay in power. And yet God, working through angels and dreams, protects Jesus so he stays alive. God's not going to get beat by his enemies. As Caiaphas demonstrates, God's enemies are only going to end up working towards God's own good purposes, whether they realize it or not. And we even read in here that the rejection of this Jewish council will lead one day to bring in the Gentiles. That the good news of Jesus and his sacrificial death will go beyond the bounds of the Jewish people to bring all God's people into one. So much for their powerful council deciding to put Jesus to death. His purpose was still accomplished. And so, John here has showed us and unmasked for us what unbelief really is. And I want us now to take some time to chew on what he said. Now, I know many of you are probably tired of chewing from this week. We did a lot of eating over Thanksgiving holiday. Perhaps someone at your gathering made a new dish or made something in a different way. And so you took that first bite of it and you just... You gave it a few extra chews trying to analyze what are the flavors in there? What did they do different? And why can't we just have this the good old way we normally make it? And we maybe chewed on it in that way. It's a little like meditating on Scripture. To meditate is not to empty our minds like Eastern religions would tell us. To meditate is to focus our minds on what we have read. To intentionally spend time considering the truth of God's words. And so this morning, I want us to do that with John 11. I want us to first consider what does this tell us about the unbelief we see in the world broadly? 
And then how it helps us to see the remnants of unbelief inside of ourselves. So as we look at unbelief in the world, we need to see it for what it is. Because unbelief can seem very attractive. Plenty of people who do not believe in Jesus appear to do much good, and we might even say that they are good people. Plenty of unbelievers are wise in the way of the world, skillfully using their knowledge to explain and analyze the world around us, and very often correctly. Plenty of people who do not believe in Jesus are in positions of power and influence that they encourage and even persuade us not to follow Jesus. That when we look at the world around us, we can understand why unbelief is such a convincing option for so many people. And yet, at the heart of it, unbelief misses such a crucial point. Jesus. How good can someone be who either despises or disregards Jesus? How wise can someone be who rejects or ridicules the Word of God? How powerful can someone be when their life is so fragile and out of their own control? For God... God reminds us through the Apostle John that he will triumph over his enemies. He will save his people. He will glorify his son, Jesus. He will judge the world in righteousness. That the Jewish council may have left their meeting that day feeling victorious, but really their defeat was sealed in that vote. The moment they opposed the Lord God Almighty. And so we need to see unbelief for what it is. But unbelief is not just something that exists out there in the world. Because every believer, every one of us retains a sinful nature. We all have remnants of sin, including the sin of unbelief in us. It reminds me of how yesterday we went to get our Christmas tree and we cut it down and I was carrying it and brought it in the house and stood it up and all of this. And all throughout the day, I just kept doing this. I just had it, the sap, it was just stuck on my fingers. I wash, I don't know how many times I washed my hands, but I still, there were moments where it was like, why am I still sticky? And it was from that tree. And our sin is like that as believers. It sticks to us. We scrub and we scrub and we scrub and it's still there. We can't get it all off. And we need to unmask these remnants of unbelief in ourselves. That we need God through the Spirit and His Word to help us question ourselves and chew on this passage and see where are those sticky spots of unbelief in us. Are we only doing good when other people can see it? When we do good, do we always have something to gain from it? Or are we doing good simply for others and for God's glory? Are we only obeying God's commands when we agree with them? And when we desire the outcome of obedience? 
Do we find ourselves coming up with justifications for why we need to disobey God's commands in order to get to these desired outcomes? Are we looking to God for the power to control our lives for the purpose of our own comfort and ease? Or are we trusting that He will work out His good purposes in and through us, even if it means we will suffer and be cast down in this life? There are remnants of unbelief in all of us. It doesn't mean we don't believe. It means there are those things in which our belief has not fully cast out the unbelief. And as we notice those remnants of unbelief in ourselves, let's go to Jesus with them. Because Jesus forgives our sins and strengthens our faith. God loves to forgive our sins. It's why He sent Jesus. He wants us to grow in godliness. And to do that, we need to see our sinfulness and seek forgiveness and say, God, please strengthen my faith. So do not hide your unbelief from Jesus. Bring it to Him in prayer. Know that He is faithful to help us. For He has promised to save all those the Father has given to Him. And if we believe, that's us as well. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that You would help us to believe in You strongly. That You would help us to meditate on Your Word and to let it evaluate us instead of us evaluating it. That You, by Your Holy Spirit, would give us checkups in the Word, checking out where sin is still in us. We pray, God, that You would help uproot those sinful desires to scrub them clean by Your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that they will continue to remain, but we long to get more and more of them off. We long to see them go away because we want to be good for You, O oh God. We know that it is good to do that. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to better reflect Your glory by living for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.